In 2010, a plane crashed in Africa. Flying from Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo, to Bandundu, a town in the east. As the plane came in to land, it crashed, killing all but one on board. No one could figure out what caused the crash. Onlookers said they saw the plane drop out of the sky without reason. The engine didn't seem to halt. The weather was perfect. Both of the pilots were fully qualified to fly. There wasn't an obvious reason why the plane crashed. The crash investigators were at a dead end. They couldn't figure out a cause. That was until they interviewed the one survivor. See, the survivor was able to explain the whole incident. There wasn't a mechanical failure or a mistake from the pilot. No, instead, it was human instinct. One kilometre away from landing, a young crocodile which was taken on board the plane and stored on board the plane got loose from its cage. The steward, upon seeing the crocodile, ran to the front of the plane to tell the pilot. Now imagine you're in the plane. You see a crocodile. You see a steward running from the front of the plane to the back. What are you going to do? Probably you're going to panic. Then imagine all 16 other passengers on board start panicking as well. Some start getting out of their seats. A couple start running to the front to get away from the crocodile. Chances are you're going to follow their actions. And according to one survivor, that's what everyone did. They saw the crocodile, they saw the steward running and saw everyone else getting up. And just like that, everyone on the plane got out of their seats and moved to the front of the plane. That threw the weight off at a crucial point as the engines were powering down. It tipped the plane forward and caused it to crash. And it's a deadly reminder of the power of groups. See, we follow the actions of others, whether that's looking into a shop window or when running away from danger. Hello folks, I'm Phil Agnew, host of Nudge, the Science of Marketing podcast. In this episode, we'll explore the power of groups and how we can't help but follow the crowd. To explore the topic, I'm joined by Laura Osborne, a professional communicator, spokesperson and podcaster with a background in public affairs and government communication. Laura is currently Corporate Affairs Director at London First. Joining Laura is Alex Chesterfield. Alex is a behavioural scientist with a master's degree in cognitive and decision science. She currently works in financial services, leading a team of behavioural scientists to help get better outcomes for employees and customers. For four years, she was elected a councillor in Guildford for the Conservative Party. Alex, Laura and their co-author, Alison Goldsworthy, recently published their book, Poles Apart. The book looks at the science behind why people turn against each other and proven tactics for bringing folks together. In today's episode, we look at how being part of a group influences us, why being left out hurts, and how we can't stop following others. But to kick off, I asked the authors of Poles Apart if we've become more polarised over time. Well, thanks very much, Phil. It's it is a question we've spent a lot of time thinking about. Polarisation, it, it ebbs and flows over time. So it's very tricky to say, obviously, not having a comparative data set for all history, that we are definitely more polarised now than we've ever been before. But what we can definitely see from the research that we've done is that the way our polarisation manifests is a bit different today. It spills out into more areas of our lives, which um, you know includes uh, uh, who we hire, who we marry, you know, and, and increasingly the friends that we have. So it it does have these sort of um, 
these spillover effects that aren't limited to the political world, which is often where we think about polarisation. And I think one of the things that, you know, we, we've been quite at pains to say is it's not just how divided we are on individual issues. It's that effective side of polarisation, which is how do our group memberships and the partisan labels we attach to us make us feel, you know, and how do we then behave as a result? So there's a, a slightly terrifying stat, actually. It says if you go back something like 30 years, only 5% of Americans cared whether their child married someone of a different different political persuasion. But today, nearly half of of Republicans and about a third of Democrats say they'd be displeased if their child married a member of the opposing party. And so, you know, when you see those sorts of consequences and, you know, the way that we divide over all kinds of um, big and small things along those group lines, the, the alarm bells that ring for us are, you know, what does this mean in business? What does this mean, as we said, for who we're hired, how aware we are of our biases? And, it, you know, those consequences really are quite significant. Polarisation does seem to be getting worse. Today, half of all Republicans would be displeased if their child married a Democrat. 30 years ago, only 5% would have been displeased. It's also clear that the groups we identify with change our own views, whether that's your view on a job candidate or your views on your daughter's boyfriend. But why do groups change the way we think? And why do we regularly form into groups? I think the first thing the first point that we should start off with and remind listeners is that we we do have this ancient capacity to to form groups and although polarization often sounds very negative negative i think its roots at least psychologically you've got to remember that being part of a group obviously the earliest groups often our families brings many um physical benefits so getting food uh finding a partner um building things uh, so many many physical benefits but also psychological benefits so feeling like we belong to a group or to a community makes us feel really good individually. It gives us a lot of self-esteem. It generally feels nice. So we have this, that's the first point to remember is that we have this ancient capacity to form groups. So in many ways, our brains have evolved to think as part of small groups. So we want to fit in um, and we want to feel like we belong. And as I said earlier, this feels really good. So we, we talk about in the book, um, I'm sure many listeners will remember uh, the film Clueless. I know Laura and I are big fans growing up in the 90s. We're going to give away <laughs> our age now. But think about Ty and, and how she she changed um, quite considerably t- to fit in with the group. And I think one of the key things that we found was that once we're part of the group, we don't just take on its views and, and outlook. We become emotionally tied to it. And we came across one, one group, or one example, sorry, of where loyalty to the group may even overtake our, our very human desires for uh, to live, you know, kind of self, self-preservation. So this example was in Sebastian Junger's War, um, an example he described where four members of a B-17 bomber crew formed a pact that they would never, ever abandon one another, uh, no matter how awful the situation was and how bad things got uh, in battle. Anyway, not long afterwards making this pact, their, their plane was shelled um, and went into a kind of free fall. Um, so the pilot ordered immediately everyone to parachute to safety. But as the, the crew, you know, were putting on their parachutes, getting everything, you know, ready to, to drop out the plane, they discovered that one of their team, um, you know, one of the people that made the pact was trapped and there wasn't any time to release him given the plane was hurtling out of the sky. So remembering this, these three members of the pact, 
they all aborted their plans to parachute to safety and they remained on the plane and they all all died. And what academics describe what happened here, because you might be sitting there, you know, cold, I guess cold listeners might be thinking, why would anyone ever do that? And academics have described this phenomena. It's almost, you know, it's almost this very strong, like visceral sense of oneness with a group for something called identity fusion. Now, this is obviously quite an extreme example, the, the one that Sebastian describes from World War II. But you see it also in like violent gangs, terrorist groups, and even, even for example, groups of traders where they're artificially distorting stock prices. And what all those groups have in common is where group membership uh, is not so much a means to an end. So, for example, to feel good, but group membership is the end in itself. But the power of groups doesn't just affect us in life and death decisions like the B-17 bomber example. In fact, the effects of groupishness, as Laura and Alex call the bias in the book, tends to impact people in all sorts of ways. Laura and Alex cite studies that have identified that our political stance can change our decisions on all sorts of topics. For example, you are more likely to vaccinate your child if the presidential candidate you voted for is elected. If you're a doctor, the course of treatment you recommend to a patient can be influenced by your own politics and perception of the patient's likely political leanings. If you're a manager, the same consideration will shape your hiring decisions. We're also more likely to listen to those with the same political views. We pick media platforms based on whether they align with our political views. And we're even more likely to find people who support the same political party as us more attractive than the average person. Now, there are plenty of reasons why we form groups. Laura and Alex detail that in the book. But ultimately, it is to satisfy a deep need to belong. This need is amplified by the pain we feel when we're not in a group. Being left out isn't nice. FOMO is painful. But not just in a metaphorical sense. No, missing out can physically hurt, at least according to some studies. You can see again the same effect when researchers look at our brain activity. This was, this was one study I wanted to highlight was done by a bunch of researchers at the University of California in L.A., and they use something called a functional magnetic resource imaging scanner, so an fMRI scanner, which looks at uh, measures brain activity to track neural responses to exclusion. So when people are excluded or shut out from a group, what happens? And what they found was that when people are shut out of a group, um, the brain, they saw heightened brain activity in two specific areas of the brain that are normally associated with the experience of physical pain. Um, so how they interpreted this finding was that it literally hurts not not to belong so you can see in many ways it makes it makes perfect sense that we um that we the way that we change the way we think um because of the groups that we identify with we change the way we think because of the groups we identify with not being part of groups can cause us to feel pain akin to real physical pain but does being part of our group actually explain our actions, not just the way we think, but our actual actions? Does it change the way we behave? Here's a fascinating study that looked into just that. One of the things I think we were surprised at when researching the book was just how differently we treat each other, not always, not always fully consciously, when they're not part of our group. Um, and also the automaticity, that makes sense, as in the, the fastness or how we automatically categorise people into groups. And I think one of, the, what, one of the, the key insights from decades of social science research is that once an us and them distinction has been made, we will always favour us 
and by the same token, disfavour them. I think one of the, the best studies that illustrates this is a study done on football fans by Professor Mark Levine and his colleagues who were then, at the time of doing the study, were at Lancaster University. So they, they recruited a uh, bunch of Manchester United fans and they invited the fans to complete two questionnaires. Um, and the aim of the, of the surveys was to try and... Um, increase their sense of allegiance that they felt to the team obviously the the participants didn't know that was the purpose of the survey so they were asked questions like why did they support Manchester United how long were they supported Manchester United for etc anyway so once they filled in the survey the football fan Manchester United fans were then asked to walk uh, to another building to watch a short film on football and as they left um, you know building one they happened to see a jogger slip and fall down, uh, you know, yelling, crying, grabbing his ankle, et cetera, and shouting out in pain. And this is where, again, unbeknown to the football fans, the participants, the experiment actually started. So in some conditions, or in some, uh, let's just say in some instances, the jogger, who was um, a kind of confederate, so what that means, he was, he was in on the experiment, he was working for the, the professors, in some instances, that, that fake the jogger, the fake jogger, wore a Manchester United shirt. Um, and in doing so, signalled himself as a member of the Manchester United in-group, you know, one of one of us. But sometimes in other conditions, that jogger, the fake jogger, would be wearing a Liverpool shirt. So again, marking himself as an out-group member, so one of them. And sometimes in a third condition, the fake jogger appeared in a plain, unbranded, you know, sports shirt. Now, the football fans, uh, so the participants, were, you know, because that had been very primed to the questionnaires they had to fill. So that identity was very salient, very top of mind as they walked from one building to the other. And the key question that Professor Levine was trying to answer was, what proportion of times would the fans stop and help a fellow human uh, on the floor after tripping up? Would the shirt that they were wearing make any difference? Well, to put it bluntly, it's to say the results were unequivocal. So when, when the person was wearing a Manchester United shirt, 92% of participants stopped to help them. But when it was a Liverpool fan, and again, for any, any people who aren't familiar with football, that is a rival team, <laughs> only about 30% stepped in. So that's a huge, a huge uh, difference between the 90% when they were wearing a Manchester United fan. Now, I'm just going to pause here to reiterate that stat. 92% of fans stopped when the injured jogger was part of their group. And yet, only 30% stopped when the jogger was part of a rival group. It seems we simply become nastier and less helpful with those who aren't part of our group. And before you go and blame that all on Manchester United fans for being unhelpful and rude, consider this other study cited in Polls Apart. Now in this study, over 700 US citizens were questioned about their political views. The task asks participants to indicate their relative feeling of attachment to Republicans and Democrats by clicking and dragging images of themselves and the two parties closer together or further apart. Now, the results showed a clear correlation between inflexibility of thought and intensity of party allegiance. In other words, participants on both the extreme left and the extreme right well, they both displayed this reduced flexibility of thought. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. If you show a stronger allegiance to your group, you'll have less flexibility in your thoughts. 
So it is obviously unlikely that only Man United fans would fail to help joggers. It realistically will be anyone who has a strong group identity who comes across someone from outside that group. But how rigid is group identity? Can we only belong to one group at a single time? Laura and Alex don't think so. They are fairly certain that our group identity is far more fluid than we think. So I think that's one of the main, I guess, main points is that our identity about how we think about who we are is very flexible. Whatever identity is most salient, and by that I mean, you know, most top of mind, depends on the context or the situation that we are in at any one moment. Um, so we describe actually in the book, it's just an anecdote, an example of a couple sitting in the kitchen and their kid is ill and they are arguing about who has to you know, take time off work the next day to look after their ill child. The father, he's, he's kind of saying to the, the woman, well, you know, mums are, are, are meant to just be looking up, meant to look after their children more when they're sick. That's kind of what women are here to do. And then when, when that argument starts, they are referring to themselves as part of a larger group, i.e. men and women. And that causes tension and conflict and hostility between them, naturally, as it would. And then we describe where they're having the argument at the kitchen table, then they get a knock at the door and it's a, a political canvasser. And it's someone from an opposing party. And in that moment, the context has changed, the situation has changed. And actually, rather than being members of opposing groups, i.e. male and female, with all the, the kind of stereotypes and the beliefs that, that are involved with thinking about ourselves through that gender lens, is they then actually become one of the same identity, which is their political, I can't remember in the book whether it be their Labour or Conservative, let's just say their, mm. their Labour, and they identify as part of the same group, and then they're united, and then the them, you know, the other, is the canvasser on the, on the doorstep, and that hostility intention dissolves between them and instead transfers to the doorstep. Hey folks, just a quick pause in the podcast here to tell you about something which I announced to all Nudge email subscribers last week. So since launching Nudge three years ago, heaps of you have asked if I could group all of the tips I've shared on the show and in the newsletter into some sort of library. So I built the Nudge Vaults. The Nudge Vaults is a community containing 100 marketing science tips from the podcast, newsletter and science of marketing course. Inside the vaults, you'll get access to over 100 tips, which will make you smarter and improve your work. You'll get full and unlimited access to the science of marketing course. You'll be able to access transcribes of all of the recent episodes. Plus, you'll be in a community where you can discuss tips with fellow behaviour science practitioners. New tips get added every week. Plus, there's new and exclusive podcasts in the Nudge Vaults every month. If this seems like something you might want to sign up to, then go and check out the vaults. You can do so by clicking the link in the show notes or by heading to nudgepodcast.com and then clicking vaults in the menu. Your first five tips are free, but be quick because there are only 10 spaces being made available this week. So if you want to get access, go and check it out now. Okay, back to the show. It's clear that our allegiances to groups can change quickly, even during the time it takes to just have a conversation. See, it's the context we're in and the groups we associate with in that context that ultimately change our behaviour. Former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown knows this all too well. In a face-to-face meeting with one of his party supporters back in 2010, he was filmed having a, a candid conversation debating about the economy. 
The TV cameras were on him, he was in a public setting, and he was having a discussion with this supporter, so he acted in a certain way. However, a few minutes later, that context changed. He got in his car, away from the cameras, away from that supporter, and suddenly his behaviour changed as well. His microphone, unbeknown to him, was still on, and he was recorded saying, that was a disaster. He should have never put me with that woman. Whose idea was that? Ridiculous. She's just a bigoted woman. It shows how quickly groups can change behaviour. In one setting, you might act a certain way, whilst in another, you might act completely different. There are some more studies in Polls Apart that showed this and, and really surprised me. One study about group allegiances shows how our behaviours change dramatically, even with groups that we might have the slightest allegiance to. In what has now become regarded as something of a classic study, the Israeli social psychologist Ziva Kunda told volunteers that they would be playing a history trivia game. To get the hang of it, they were told that they would observe someone else, let's call this person Jane, play the game before they began. Now half the group was told that Jane would join their team, and the other half were told that Jane would join the rival team. Now, Jane was in fact astute. She was set up to play the game perfectly and answer every question correctly. What the researchers found was that attitudes towards Jane changed based on group allegiances. Those who were told that Jane would be joining their team praised her skills, her quality, her intelligence. Those who thought they would be competing against Jane were far more dismissive when questioned about her. They tended to attribute her accuracy to luck. Both groups saw the exact same performance, yet individuals in the group came to opposite conclusions. Clearly, we are very quick to take sides, quick to change our opinions based on the group. But what happens when we sit on the fence? Alex explained to me how that too can be met with hostility. Just to add to that, there's a really interesting um, historical example. This wasn't a scientific study, but again, as part of the book of of the co-author Ali, Uh, was researching where the terms left and right come from, you know, which are very rooted in the kind of political tribalism. And it was from the French Revolution. I guess as France stood on the brink of revolution back in, was it late 1700s? Imagine you had the clergy, the nobility, and other other people gathered around. And they were either, they either sat on the left or the right of the royal tennis courts where they met, according to whether they supported the king or not. So they support the king, they sat on the right, or if they wanted reform, they sat on the left. And that's where the left-right metaphor came from, seems to have persisted ever since. But there was one guy in this mix, uh, again, a member of the nobility called, I'm going to get my French pronunciation wrong, the Baron de Gauville. Um, But he was present at this meeting, he was very sympathetic to the king, but he kept on changing his mind. And he sat in numerous parts of the room, to demonstrate that actually he was a master of his own opinions and didn't want to take side. But in these historical records, it's noted that he was condemned to booze from the gallery. So I think the point to take from that is, uh, yeah, is it can, it can really pay uh, in many cases to take, to take a side. Before we finish, I wanted to chat about how all of this applies to marketing. Do these findings tell us anything about our work? Well, I think the findings show how important positioning is. Creating a product that tries to appeal to everyone is just really unlikely to capture any interest. But if you create a product that is targeted towards a specific group, i.e. a product that takes a side, that doesn't sit on the fence, 
it's far more likely to attract attention. Polls apart show that we feel strong allegiances to groups, how we copy the behaviour of others in that group. So if you can build something that solves a problem for a specific group, then you're probably on to a winner. Now this is essentially what April Dumford taught us about positioning in episode 48 of Nudge. She says that effective positioning is describing how your product is great at providing value for something that a well-defined set of customers cares a lot about. Essentially, targeting your offering at a well-defined audience, at a well-defined group, is a must for most marketing campaigns. Now, two examples of this spring to mind. A few years back, Costa Coffee ran a campaign that highlighted how 7 out of 10 coffee lovers preferred Costa to rival brands like Starbucks. The campaign specifically targeted coffee lovers, people who defined themselves as essentially coffee nerds. That targeting seemed to work. Sales increased by 5.5% after their campaign was run, according to The Guardian. The other example I wanted to share is from Dave Trott's book, One Plus One Equals Three. He shares the story of Amadeo Giannini, a Sicilian who emigrated to San Fran in 1904. Now, Giannini knew that his group, which was Sicilian immigrants, they needed a bank. Existing banks offered really poor deals for immigrants and Sicilians needed a solution. So he built something for the group, a bank where Sicilians would feel welcome. He didn't know anything about positioning, but he knew the name of the bank should be something that they specifically trusted, that that specific group would trust. So he opened a little shop front with a big sign outside saying, Bank of Italy, fisherman, this is your bank. You couldn't be more specific with that targeting. And by specifically targeting his group, he was showing that his bank was not just for rich white people. And the Sicilian fishermen, they came in their hundreds, depositing their savings. The Bank of Italy became a success. But the Bank of Italy kept growing. It was loved so dearly by Sicilians that other immigrants wanted in. And soon, Americans did too. The Bank of Italy grew and grew until it became the only statewide bank across California. Now it was time to stop being a bank for just Sicilian fishermen. No, the bank needed to be a brand that all US citizens could feel was their bank. The founder needed to reposition, so in 1930 he changed the name to Bank of America. Now it felt like it had stature, it felt like it had history and tradition. And Bank of America grew because of this positioning, it grew so fast that in a few decades it would become the second largest bank in the entire USA. And then in 1958 they launched the world's first credit card. It was called the Bank AmeriCard. It essentially created the credit card market around the entire world. And that meant that the card wasn't just for Americans, so it needed to rebrand again. So Bank AmeriCard renamed itself to Visa, and today Visa has 38% of the world's credit card market. It handles 62 billion transactions a year, amounting to $4.4 trillion. Now Giannini didn't try to build something for the world, he started with a very well-defined group and built something specifically for them. When he realised it could help more people, he expanded the offering. Giannini understood the power of groups and used this to his advantage. That is all for today, folks. I hope you have enjoyed today's episode. Laura and Alex will be back again soon with another episode on Nudge. And in that episode, we tackle a topic that I can't wait to talk about. In that episode, 
we'll discuss how to change someone's mind. Now, they don't share BS tactics that you might expect from a run-of-the-mill LinkedIn guru. No, they share the real science behind changing someone's mind. It is a must-listen, so make sure you're subscribed to Nudge wherever you listen to Nudge. Anyway, here's a question for you. Do you like this show? Do you tune in pretty much every two weeks for each new episode? If so, would you like more? Would you like more tips about the science behind great marketing? Well, if the answer to all those questions is yes, then then why not sign up to my newsletter? Every other week, I share a nudge tip that I've come across either in my day job or just whilst walking around essentially in the world. And I share these tips in concise emails every other Monday. So far, I've shared how scarcity has helped my local pub grow sales, how Amazon stops customers from leaving Prime, and how an e-bike company used a simple nudge to stop delivery men from breaking their bikes. Folks seem to love it. Over 500 have signed up and almost 100,000 have viewed these tips on LinkedIn. So if you want to join them, head to the show notes and press sign up to the newsletter. Just enter your email and you'll get a marketing science email in your inbox once a week. Of course, if you want a copy of Laura and Alex's book, Poles Apart, and I suggest you should really check it out, then you'll find a link to that in the show notes. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Nudge. Do reach out if you have any feedback, and I'll see you again in two weeks. Cheers. Cheers.